William Lustig's 1988 cult horror classic Maniac Cop is a lovingly crafted letter to New York City's seedy underbelly. It's as much a killer cop movie as it is a cop killing movie, which I suppose is partly the reason behind why even members of the cast itself have tried to distance themselves from the participation in the movie. Similarly, many critics have also written the film off as a forgettable farce. But we here at Midnight Flicks pride ourselves in defending the indefensible and honoring the sometimes dishonorable. Maniac Cop is gritty sewer cinema at its best, and we shine a light into its seedy, dark crevices next on Midnight Flicks. from inside the department. That means he is one of us. You see a cop, you cross to the other side of the street. You're not gonna get me. Everybody wants to shoot a cop nowadays has got one hell of an excuse. This one is my personal life, any of your business. Since your wife was found dead in the motel room, you gotta be wrong. You wanna see the pretty picture? Hold on, I, I didn't do any of this. When a cop turns killer, you have the right to remain silent forever. Maniac Cop. Welcome. To Midnight Flicks, a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late night purgatory. I am one of your hosts, Pat Mitchell, and joining me on this cinematic expedition is Adam Walker. Adam, how are you on this blessed evening? Good evening. Here we are. This is, uh, for me, entering week three of quarantine. Oh, boy. It's real. <laughs> We're in the doldrums now. Like I told you before getting on the mic, hit a little bit of a wall. But I've sprung back. I got my I've got my quarantine second win, and <clears throat> I'm back, baby. St- I'm stand, glad to have you back. Staying strong. Got my mind right. 
for now. For now. <laughs> Who knows how long this, this shit's going to keep dragging and ebb and flowing. Well, I'll tell you what. I know coming out the other end of this, I feel like I will be a more accomplished uh, individual in certain respects because I've been 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 vigilant about staying active in my creative pursuits. So, which is so underrated for, underrated right now in terms of like I don't think people pay attention to the amount of physicality that they need to maybe start exerting because sitting around like this for this long is just not what human bodies have been made for. Absolutely not. But you know, the thing is with me, I, um, I was forged in isolation and loneliness. (laughs) (laughs) You're a cast iron, uh, uh, quarantine member. (laughs) Yeah. I, I am. I am a desolate warrior. As am I, you know, whatever. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not yeah. too worried about it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm fine. I'm doing fine. Anyways. Well, I wanted to, uh, start off by talking about something very serious. So if we could be serious for a second here. Yeah. Let's add some gravitas to the moment. Yes. Carol Baskins totally killed her husband, didn't she? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh, Yes. Thank you for that, <laughs> for bringing that in, because I know that that was what we were going to talk about. And I totally spaced it. Yeah. hundred percent. I'm like, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm com- completely convinced that she's done it. Uh, she did. She totally fed him to the tigers too. Like I, there, I'm the, the whole thing is, is a wrap. I, I, I have no other thoughts on it. Yeah, on that aspect of it. But if we're going to go into a Tiger King intro, mm-hmm. uh, yes, I, I we've both completed it recently. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's almost like uh, necessary provisions uh, with this quarantine. It's it's almost like um, somebody whispered in Trump's ear, like you're not handling uh, this COVID nineteen business very well, and he was just like release the tiger documentary (laughs) it's been classified it's been under wraps (laughs) really yeah it had some weird code name folder thing and they Mm -hmm. just released it on netflix and now everyone's like all right (laughs) but he really is for anyone listening to this if you have not watched tiger king on netflix it's as good and better than uh anybody is making it out to be it's it's really phenomenal, especially if you love a good, just, how would you describe that, this documentary? Uh, well, (laughs) (laughs) that's in it of itself. Your belated pause is, is pretty much the description of the movie. Indescribable. Yeah. I I will say this w- without describing it necessarily. It is t- in terms of the narrative and the timeline, it is set up in such a way to fuck your mind up so bad that by the end of it, it's it's shattered. It's your perception of this alternate reality that these people exist in because at the the beginning 
you know, it's, it starts off crazy. It starts off with a crazy premise to begin with, but it, it's, it, it at least gives you the presumption that you can be sympathetic somewhat to these characters. And then just it piece by piece unravels any of that sympathy that you would have. And you realize that this is a scenario where these Dunkel dumb fucks, these backstabbing idiot fucking mutants all are just lined up. Like it's like that, 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 that image of all the people lined up with all the guns in a circle, like pointed at each other. <laughs> you know like what a, I mean? What, like Mexican standoff? Basically. But you know, like where it's just like everybody, Only everybody has a dildo in their hand. <laughs> right. No one, nobody actually has a gun. Yes. So it, you know, it operates on this premise that, you know, it's it, that if given the chance, someone will do whatever they, they can, whatever is permissible to be the worst kind of human beings that they can be in this world. Like to me, it's just like, that is the baseline uh, representation of humanity in this country through that documentary in a lot of ways. Truly everybody in, in Tiger King is an absolute deplorable piece of shit outside of, I will, I will grant, uh, uh, these three people, uh, the girl who had her hand bitten off. Yeah. The guy with no legs. Right. And Carol Baskin's husband. I think Carol Baskin's husband is legit. Seems legitimately like a really nice guy who seems to be just in a marriage where he's getting walked all over. But well, yeah, he's a, he's, he's a chump. He's, he's adult. That's getting, he's a, he's a chump and adult, but he's not deplorable the way every other single piece piece of shit in this movie is and it's it's wild I, I if i was forced to describe it i would say christopher guest was asked to direct a like dateline uh true crime episode that he that he stumbled across it feels like christopher guest characters it's yeah. so nuts it's like a mockumentary like a best in show about tiger Greeting. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. I will also say that there is a certain Greek tragedy sort of aspect to it with Joe Exotic being Joe Exotic is definitely made out to be a pariah. Uh, and and hey, there's a certain sense of martyrdom uh to Joe Exotic because you walk away and even though he might be the biggest piece of shit in the whole movie, you you like him. You you like genuinely like and like that's him. And that really is the crux of it. So like, yeah, it's, it's very Sophoclean where he is this King in his own kingdom that, you know, step by step is his kingdom is, is deconstructed is demolished through actions that are more or less his doing, you know? So he is his own undoing. He, you know, it's like, he starts off, basically being a pretty successful entrepreneur for all intents and purposes, he is like, he is very, very smartly crafted his image and put it out there. And he's a, he's a perfect kind of avatar for what we have represented in the, in the presidency and that whole culture right there. Um, 
So <clears throat> there is that aspect to it. And then, yes, he just, he just does more and more dumb fucking shit out of just sheer spite and vengeance, just free, free flying spite and vengeance that just like, you know, he, he's up against an enemy that he can't take down. He, he doesn't, you know, so, and he just makes more and more bad decisions to the point where it's his complete undoing. Um, it's a uniquely American experience. It, it does. It very, is. It's very, uh, ju- it's like juggalos. Like we were talking about earlier. <laughs> Much like the wild juggalos of Michigan. It is <laughs> a, a, a beautiful uh, a painting of, of, American consumerism and, but also in, in like a, in a pie in the sky way, a, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And in America, you can be anything you want to be and you can make yourself, uh, you know, famous in a number of avenues. Um, so in that way, I also find it very endearing because I do love a good, backwards American tale. Well, and I also like the idea going back to the analogy of talking about Kings and, and charismatic individuals that when it talks about the three main exotic animal, wild animal handlers, Carol Baskin, Joe exotic and doc, and they go in depth about the operation that actually they are managing. And you realize they're, they're cult, they're cult leaders. They're, they're just cult leaders. Yeah. Yeah. You do get that. You do get Jim Jones vibes, especially from doc doc is giving off bigger Jim Jones vibes than anybody in that movie. But maybe Carol is, is, uh, equally as much a a cultist. Joe exotic doesn't come off as culty as the, as the other ones outside of his, like turning these, uh, clearly straight men, fake gay for show but, but that's that, what i mean <laughs> he may not he he may be the least cult like but he still is operating uh, oh yeah yeah a compound like a cult like yeah you have to his people will follow him to to the death they'll just do anything for him and that's yes, true and that's he can true. and he's able to mani- manipulate all these people uh to do his his bidding like he said by you know preying on the uh the, the weaknesses of these young men through you know preying on their their um <clears throat> their their dependencies their drug dependencies and just their general i would say you know mental incapacity so <laughs> well their mental deficiencies speaking of uh, mental deficiencies Shall we get into Maniac Cop? Yes, that's a good segue. Which has, which feels like uh, a film with mental deficiencies, which is why we're talking about it on here and why we are both endeared by it. Well, yeah. And also, as we'll get into, I'm sure, deals with a central character that he himself was described as having mental deficiencies, being mentally, mentally deranged and handicapped. That's right. All right. Let's get into it. Yeah. Maniac Cop, 1988, directed by William Lustig, uh, written and produced by the great Larry Cohen. Um, 
a murderous ex-police officer returns back from the dead and seeks revenge on uh, the people who wronged him. Um, and he is thusly pursued by his former co-workers. Um, it is that simple. <laughs> it's There's not a lot going on in here uh, in terms of complexities. Um, if we were to compare this with the Ichi the Killer episode, I would say this is the polar opposite in terms of <laughs> just... Yes, in terms of intrigue or any sort of convolution of plot. They're both, it's crazy. They're both super violent, but this is the other side of that violence. There's no commentary here. Uh, it is it is pure popcorn fun, if I were to put it nicely. Yeah, I, Ichi is, is, a, is a convoluted yarn yarn ball whereas this is a pretty pretty straight line straightforward just super fun yeah um revenge story in terms of in this category continues to become muddled but in terms of a roger ebert or glenneth danzig <laughs> the, <laughs> i tried the, to make glenn up for a longer name i just couldn't do it um i couldn't find either for uh, either individual um, but, but go ahead. Okay. Sorry. Can I interject for no, one yeah, second? Of course. So what I will say in terms of Ebert, I know again, if he saw this movie, he would have given it a thumb way, way down. Cause that was his, <laughs> that yes, was, no, that was, that, that was his MO. And <clears throat> last night we were watching, um, a program on shutter, uh, and it was about slasher movies and about the history of slasher movies. And they had an, a, a sidebar about critics from the eighties, particularly Siskel and Ebert who had it in so bad for these movies. And they would criticize it under this premise that they felt the movies not only were just gratuitous, gratuitously violent, but were also misogynistic. And as I've said before with Ebert is, when I've read other Ebert reviews, I feel like he's got a creepy old man, creepy uncle kind of vibe with the way he reviews movies that have some sort of ingenue or somebody, an actress that he he's glommed onto. And <clears throat> they're talking about how, you know, he particularly cited these movies as misogynistic. And I almost feel like, Again, this ties together with he had some sort of I don't want to analyze Ebert too much, but he definitely had something there where it might have been he was projecting some of his own inner shit, his own inner creep onto some of these movies. And so with like slashers and horror horror movies, you know, he wanted to he wanted to present himself as being, you know, the one with the, the on the moral high ground about this and protecting the interests of women by criticizing these movies and trying to keep them, you know, out of the public or whatever. Whereas I feel like, I don't know, I feel like he might've had, you know, not, not the best of intentions. If you, if you really dug down into his, his psyche, but that's just my little sidebar there. Well, in some respects, the, the fact that there isn't a review speaks volumes because he may have not even, uh, thought this was even worth watching which is uh, a review in and of itself i suppose yeah um the film was uh 
basically critically uh, critically panned across the board. Uh, Variety called it a disappointing thriller that wastes an oddball premise. Um, New York Times said uh, that it's an amateurish film with stiff acting and dialogue. LA Times wrote that the film quickly becomes an uninteresting Friday the 13th clone, which is really bizarre. I didn't get any Friday the 13th vibes. I'm not even sure. <laughs> I'm not even, I, I'm, I'm like racking my brain as to what they were specifically talking about. Um, and I can't even really deduce. That's just more just blanket statements from hack fucking critics that don't it's really true. have any sort of investment in the genre itself. So they just see, they just see aspects of it that resemble all these other movies like Ebert would do. He would say like, Oh, well, this is like an identikit type of movie instead of doing any other like critical analysis into it to see that. Yeah. It shares a DNA with all these other things, but you, it really is when you get down to it, it's a different movie, but that's, yeah, that, that that's a really bizarre comparison. Yeah. Um, Time Out London criticized the film as formulaic and said that it might have been better had writer-producer uh, Larry Cohen directed it himself. Now, they might have a, a point there. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard Harrington of the Washington Post called the script undernourished and obvious. And uh, this is just a snippet, but this is basically at the time, even though it was actually a, a financial success, um, it was critically shit on almost across the board, uh, which those two uh, aspects are what make up a cult movie. Um, maybe not the financial success, but a critically panned movie that develops uh, a following over time. Um, and this is uh, that this fits that mold almost perfectly. Maniac Cop is the very definition of a cult movie. Yes. So without further ado, the good, the bad, and the questionable. The good. Straight off the top, how fucking tight is it to have Tom Atkins and Bruce Campbell sharing the same space in a movie? <laughs> that is very sick. Without right. doing any other research, I did not research this. Is this the only time that this is this the only movie they're both in? Um, I have I've, no idea. I'm pretty sure it is, but I honestly don't know. So it's got it's got to be, but. Um, it's the only thing it's the only one that I can even recall, but uh, having both of them in this, and I think they only share one scene in the movie together where they're actually acting tit for tat across from one another. Um, and it, if, it's beautiful. Yeah. What if we found out because they have so much uh, or they have so little screen time together that they didn't like each other. I want to get into that juicy. <sighs> well, um, I, I, I had this in my uh, wiki wormhole, but Bruce Campbell notoriously hates this movie yes. and has stated that it's the worst thing he's ever done. Um, right. Whereas Tom Adkins, uh, I, I liked the movie. I mean, 
enough. I mean, he, th- this is his bread and butter right here. Yeah. More so than Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell does get in the dirt a little bit with horror movies, but um, he also, you know, is in a million other things that aren't horror movies. Well, and, and I'll say this much. I feel like from, from what I know of both of those actors, I feel like as much as I love Bruce Campbell and I love things he's been in, Bruce Campbell probably always had aspirations to be a much bigger, bigger personality yes. than no, he, he was. He really did. He you know? had aspirations of being a leading man. Exactly. And he never quite made it. So he has just been relegated as being a, a B-movie superstar. And he's capitalized on that in his own way. You know, he, he knows he knows where he fits in. Whereas Tom Atkins himself, I don't think Tom Atkins ever had those illusions. Tom Atkins probably always felt like he he's a quirky, particular kind of actor. He's a genre actor. He's a genre actor and he's happy with that. So he's happy with playing these, these kind of roles, these quirky underground roles. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, More good. It's just a mindless fun as hell action horror romp um it's almost like a horror exploitation movie uh you turn your brain off for 90 minutes zone out and it's just it's just super fun yeah um this overarching theme of (laughs) which is why this movie was so hard to distribute and film um because the overarching theme of never trust the cops is very prevalent in this. It's a very anti-cop movie, which isn't very uh, popular, obviously. Um, But, you know, there's, you have Lieutenant McRae played by Tom Atkins, who was told by his superiors to suppress eyewitness accounts that the killer was wearing a police uniform Um, for being as old as this movie is. That is still so prominent today. Uh, You know, cops covering up for corrupt cops who are killing innocent uh, citizens and innocent uh, cops alike. Yeah. That was one really cool thing about this movie, especially seeing the, the film footage or the, the, the newsreel footage where they're talking to the people on the street and all the people on the street, you know, unequivocally are like, I don't trust a cop. You know, I, I especially don't trust a cop. Now, if I see a cop, I'm going to walk, across the street, especially you know, where they're talking to people of color. And to me, it's like that feeling has always been present, obviously in those communities, particularly, but it's become more of a thing that's come to the forefront in recent time because it's, because it's just so hard to ignore it with the ubiquity of people being able to show it on social media and project it on the internet, but it's always been a thing. And to see that, like, even back then in 1988, people were saying that, that, yeah, to me, like, I thought that was a great social commentary. And also the commentary on this idea that Cordell, you know, as you were saying, like, he's comes from this corrupt old world of cops, this, this brotherhood of cops, old, old guard, yeah. old guard where, you know, to them being a good cop is just basically being a mercenary and just, you know, being a judge dread sort of individual. <laughs> yeah. And then what happens is the system fails him and turns him into this Frankenstein's monster sort of thing. 
you know, where he, he comes out of that corrupt system and then turns on the people that have aided and abetted it. Yeah. Cause these certain social injustices, like you said, uh, have been ever prevalent uh, mm-hmm. for decades and decades now, but yeah. it's nice to see a movie that's this old um, kind of provide a, a mouthpiece for more disenfranchised individuals. It's, it's actually really cool. Um, yeah. And here I was at the top saying this doesn't really have a commentary, but th- that is definitely in in there. And the more we've talked about it, the more I I really I truly believe that. And it, and it's cool because it's 1988. I mean, it's a yeah. while ago. <laughs> the scene where Corden gets impaled driving the police truck off the pier is just a an incredibly tight, and I don't mean tight as in cool, although it is cool. It's just incredibly tight and well choreographed action sequence. Tight as in just like perfectly produced and perfectly choreographed. It's so well done. I mean, you've got the stunt actor falling off of the, the side of it. Who's you know mm-hmm. Bruce Campbell's stunt performer. That thing is, is careening off the pier. I mean, it is expertly done. It's a great piece of, of, of action set work. Yeah. It's, it's a really great finale. It's wonderful. Um, and as with every Larry Cohen movie, his trademark, the writing in this is really witty and smart and, and funny. And it, it does brighten the movie. It's a bright spot in the movie, even if even despite the delivery of the lines not being up to snuff. Right. Um, it, it's still a well-written movie and you can, you can tell when something is well-written, but poorly acted and poorly executed as opposed to poorly executed and poorly written, which is so much more of a a fucking just drudgery to get through when a movie is as both. Which you don't feel that way at all this movie. Well, yeah, I was about to say, which you don't, you do not feel it it does. It's fun. It's a fun movie. It it, it really is. Mm -hmm. Um, What, what, what do you, what did you like about it? Um, I just like in general, I like old gritty New York movies. And of course this is clearly, this is a snapshot of old New York and how (laughs) it was in a lot of ways this lawless place and but this place that also birthed so much culture that went on to influence the rest of the world and you know the pre-Giuliani New York no matter how fucked up and dangerous it was it has a romantic it, it has a romantic aspect to it and so like I just love any any good movie that dedicates itself to, you know, painting a portrait of that, that era. These are the last vestiges of grindhouse, New York. It really, it truly is, especially in 1988. Um, You're entering in the nineties, kind of the last vestiges of, of that old, old New York, which was like you said, almost like a wild, wild west of sorts. Right. So yeah, I liked that as well. Well, and that's why I'm hoping someday you come around a little bit more to Ferreira because I, f- I feel like he does a good job. Of, of We're going to get on this sidebar. No, uh, I, I, I won't. I won't. <laughs> oh, I'm ready. Okay. Okay. Let's not. <laughs> we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get to there, but I'm just saying, um, aside from that, some, <clears throat> some other things. Um, I re- I like the scene where Cordell 
has the interaction with the couple in the car at the stoplight and ultimately takes the boyfriend, throws him against the windshield. To me, that was very reminiscent of a device that he used in Maniac. Uh, <clears throat> so I like that a lot. I, I really like the um, the flashback scene of Cordell getting jumped in the that shower sing-sing. and Sing Sing. Yeah. Yep. So it's and, well done. And flashback is such a lazy uh, uh, cinematic approach. Like typically like it's, <laughs> it's a pretty lazy uh, thing to utilize, but I thought it was effectively done. It's very effective. I feel during that whole sequence, when you're watching it, you actually, you sympathize with Cordell. You feel bad for him. It's a much needed uh, character depth being added to him. So he's not just a mindless, uh, for lack of a better word, maniac. Well, yeah. But even when you know about his backstory, about how he sounds like he was a fucking asshole. He was, he was a just this cop that thought he was above the law and he clearly destroyed innocent lives probably through this war path that he was on but in his mind thinks he was a virtuous individual and his compatriots think so so on the one hand and also if you're already somebody that ain't too keen on cops like present company you know you're like whatever fuck him but that moment in, in Sing Sing where it shows him fighting for his life and he's like battling these this onslaught of this gang of dudes that are just fucking him up and he's just you just see him pummeling them you're like in this moment where you're just like you're kind of like rooting for him and you're like yeah dude and it's it's kind of hard to watch because you know he's getting hurt really bad and when you see him like just like ramming dudes heads into the walls and stuff it's just it's like so that, good there's that vis there's all this visceral reaction you have to it and then when it when it <clears throat> uh when it's put up against him basically having that flashback in the dock where he's just trying to sleep or whatever, you know, and he's just like, he's got the thousand mile stare that you can kind of just see through the light shining through the, the cracks of the, of the dock house. And so it's just like, it's this moment where you're just kind of, kind of like you're in a weird, ambiguous emotional state because you're feeling for this fucking monster, this shitty human being. Yeah. <laughs> And again, it goes, it goes back to that whole idea of what I was saying about him being, he's kind of a Frankenstein monster sort of creation, you know, where he does all these horrible things, but you know, at the same time you feel like maybe there could have been a better way, or maybe he's just misunderstood or whatever. So that's, that's one thing for sure that I like a lot. So bad. Um, It's a very trope heavy uh, affair. Um, police tropes galore Mm -hmm. jack forrest is the rookie green under his collar cop with something to prove cheating on his wife with his partner in the force yeah uh frank mccray is the hard-nosed veteran who plays it by the books and always gets his mans uh Teresa mallory is the the bombshell sidekick who goes undercover of course as a prostitute um and even Cordell, it plays the is the the trope of like the corrupt cop who always toes the line of justice and bends the law, uh, and violent at a whim. I mean, uh, it's very tropey in terms of you have almost every demographic of police officer represented here. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> and you know, I, it's not bad. I mean, it's not like it, it didn't like take me out of it, but it, it's definitely when, when you talk about bad aspects of this movie, it, it's, you know, it, it's trope heavy. It can, it's a little heavy handed with that kind of stuff. Well, yeah. And that goes back to like that actual, the actual plot itself is it's a pretty straightforward premise. Like we were saying before, there's yeah. not, a, there's not a lot of depth to that with, no. even, with even some of the, the little bit of character development that I was just talking about with Cordell, the, the actual, you know, the characters themselves are, are pretty stock and trade. They're fairly one dimensional. Yeah. yeah. Which is was which is what my next bad was. Uh, the story is almost too simplistic. I mean, nothing comes as a real revelation. Uh, there's not much thought provoking <laughs> context going on. Mm. Um, so that isn't my bad. But also, I would say I I do like brainless cinema. Sometimes I, I do enjoy just being able to check out and know that if I go to the fridge to get a beer, I didn't miss shit. I don't need to pause it because I'm not right. like, I'm going to miss some shit and then I'm going to come back and be confused. Like, you know, <laughs> precisely. Yeah. Um, that was all my bad because I mean, it's hard to dissect a movie that's already in the, in the dredge of c- cinematic society. <laughs> I mean, it's not, you know, we're not breaking down uh, Shakespeare here. Yeah, but what, not, ba- what bad did you have? We're not dissecting a Criterion Collection piece. No, here. no. So, <laughs> I would love to see this get that sort of release, though. There has been some movies that I've seen put in Criterion. Criterion is not above uh, slapping slapping that Criterion symbol on on some on, on some, some trash shit, on yeah, some for real sure. trash. I lo- that's what I like about Criterion. <laughs> yeah. So who knows? Maybe we'll see a Maniac Cop Criterion. I, mean, I have the Criterion Solo movie, so <laughs> if they're really to go there they're willing to go most places yeah but that's artful trash that right is there. artful yeah when i see him with a literal shit-eating grin after eating that pile of fucking hot turds i just i think you think i need to be eating more turds in my life Montebello. <laughs> um <laughs> bad yeah, not a whole lot, but basically for me, just real nitpicky things. Just uh, <laughs> Teresa Mallory's makeup is bad, and it's not even just because she's playing a prostitute. It's just in general. She, you can tell it, it's it's that whole idea of like when a cop is playing a punk undercover to bust the punk shows, and he, you know, the cop shows up. Hello, kids. Here we're here at the punk. How much for the concert tonight? Yeah, so Teresa's Ma- Teresa Mallory's portrayal as a prostitute is very much like a cop playing a prostitute. And I don't know if you noticed this, but when she uh, displays her badge, it's upside down. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and they noticed it in editing. It, that's a fuck up. Yeah. And they just couldn't go back and reshoot it, so they just kept it in there, which is such a hilarious because I noticed it in the movie. I was like, why the fuck is her badge upside down? And then I read that that's a total fuck up and they just couldn't go back and reshoot it. So yeah, they make it, her look like an even bigger idiot by being like, Dur, I'm a fucking cop too. Like, like <laughs> yeah. cookie crisp badge upside down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, this is like a bad questionable. I don't know how much you'll agree with me on this, but I feel like Bruce Campbell doesn't really bring it in this. He's, you could tell he's, he's kind of phoning it in. This is, 
especially when you consider that this happened right after Evil Dead 2, which to me, Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness are Bruce Campbell's. That's his apex mountain. That's his apex shit. for sure. For, you know, especially where it's this him full on slapstick, you know, in full on slapstick fucking mode and over the top. And he's just playing it to the hill with this. He's not playing it at all. He's a, he's in a very understated role in this. And maybe that's because, you know, as we said, he didn't really like the movie. He didn't like the script. He was just in it to make some money. So he's just kind of, he kind of coasted through this movie. It's not in my bad, but it is part of the bad of this movie. He does. He is in this movie acting. He's acting almost like a petulant child. He does. does, It comes across as I don't really want to be doing this. Mommy made me act in this movie. Like (laughs) it really is after you read it and you're like, oh, he had a terrible experience or just didn't care for the movie and was and has, has been quoted as saying, I just did it for a paycheck. Be a be a fucking Tom Atkins professional asshole and right. give put your best foot forward because the movie is only going to be as good as what you also put forward. I yeah, mean, motherfucker, come on you're, now. Your yeah. name's attached to it. If you're a band, if you're a band and you're playing a gig to two people, you still play like you're playing to a fucking 300 man. No shit. He, so same he thing. really does. I guess the other part of the bad would be that I'd lost a little bit of respect for him with just, his overall attitude about this and his performance in this. Yeah, I would agree. I didn't put that in there, but I thought it the whole time. Shame on you, Bruce. He, he knows better. And Tom Atkins was on set. He had to have been playing set dad. Yeah. You should have made him come correct. <laughs> those were, those were it for me. Otherwise I have questions. I have questions. I have questions galore. That's good. I don't have many. Uh, so take well, it away. I guess I don't have many. I just, they're just, they're, it's not numerous. They're just a incredibly glaring. <laughs> I, yeah. I have a real big, big question. I'm sure you're going to bring it up. So go ahead. Why is Cordell released into Sally's care? Who is Sally? What is their connection? Did I miss something? I tried to look it up after the fact without watching the movie again. Cause I haven't seen this in a long time. And, uh, well, Sally's girlfriend there they have a romantic were were they were they romantically involved before he went to prison yeah they talk about that the death the death surgeon talks about it maybe this was one of my beer breaks when I say (laughs) that when I go get a beer I'm not gonna miss anything I miss this you miss yeah you miss the crucial aspect of of I went and grabbed like a fucking beer and took a piss and came back and there then I missed what Sally's connection was going on yeah they they were romantically involved before he was sent to Sing Sing and the desk sergeant even mentions yeah he had a girlfriend she wasn't much to look at blah 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 oh maybe that's why I was thrown off because Sally is a is a real crippled looker tell me about it yeah she's not a bad looking (laughs) woman so it's 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 a real sideways fucking thing for that death sergeant say to say about her but, all right i threw you a, cur- a a softball there you're welcome next yeah, question yes yeah. <laughs> so there you go that's their connection i wanted to, well, st- I wanted to start off easy for you but I, f- I figured you would have still even if you missed that that whole scene where uh <clears throat> where mccray and the death sergeant's talking 
when she's at the dock with Cordell, she's being very affectionate to him. Didn't you pick up right it there? Did not, it came off and this maybe goes to that, that LA times review or whatever it was. It came off very motherly. Okay. It did not come off as, as relationship, like a romantic relationship, which made me think of the Friday, the 13th uh, reference. I, I thought of her more as like a, a, a very bitter mother figure that, what did they do to my son? Yeah, I can see that too. If you miss that dialogue, that would be the next conclusion that you would make is that she's a family member. It's a literal, it's a, I, I swear it's, it's because I got up and got, and yeah, I got to stop drinking during movies. Um, <laughs> never. What is, what is Cordell's motive? His killing motive is, seems random. I mean, he's killing civilians and police officers alike. He's, I mean, unintentionally seeming seemingly is framing Jack. Um, I don't think it's unintentional. Is it okay? It, it became to, it got to the point where it seemed very intentional. Mm. Is there a reference (laughs) while I was grabbing beers to Jack having been the one to, uh, you know, hang him up for the crime or whatever, or being a catalyst for him going to prison in any respect. I I don't think that there was that. I think the original senseless killings, that is, they're definitely senseless because Cordell is a monster. He's unhinged and he has brain damage. But before he went to prison, though, he was just a corrupt cop who was who was just violent with civilians. Right. And so he then goes to prison, gets his ass beat, which a a cop going to prison is a death sentence, Mm -hmm. even to today standards, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then is presumed dead, is not dead and then comes back for revenge. But what is his revenge on who he's the asshole? (laughs) Well, but he's he's seeking to get revenge on basically the the bureaucrats of the force. So why is he killing civilians? Because, again, I think that just goes back to he was already a violent asshole. Oh, so that's just like part of his asshole fun. He's like, I'm going to have a little bit of asshole fun while I do this. Yeah. So he when he was in the force, even though he was a violent asshole, he still had to operate within certain constraints. He couldn't just kill innocent civilians. There had to be some sort of reason if he did. Whereas now he's out and he's like, I can just do whatever I want. I'm a monster. I'm on a killing spree. I already hated people to begin with. So I'll just kill a couple, I'll kill a couple motherfuckers till, you know, I, I I'm getting to the, the main, the main course. And along the way, he's able to figure out how to frame Jack Forrest. It seems disorganized and I don't like it. And we don't get any reasoning as to why he would be framing Jack. I I am used to this, this trope in movies where the killer that really has a vendetta, mm-hmm. you are given a, a setup as to who specifically wronged him. So yeah. that way, you know, who's, who is going to get it in the movie and you watch them live their lives and knowing that they are next on his shit list. This, the randomization of the violence was just was violence for violence's sake. I mean, he's just fucking having some funsies, uh, but it didn't, 
it just is a little bit confusing because it's like, oh, he's just fucking killing anybody. But, but yeah, I don't want to belabor the point. What's what? What yeah, else? But he only kills two people before he eventually kills Forrest's wife and then sets Forrest up for the fall. <laughs> sure, only only two lives were lost, Adam. Well, I'm just you, saying, your capacity the... for human life is is shocking. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> He's that's that's I not I, yeah, okay. I, you answered my question. I just okay. don't like your answer. Well, fair enough. <laughs> uh <laughs> is that it? Were those yeah, the two that, main ones? That's what that was my two main ones. Yes, <laughs> thank you. One was because I took a pee pee break and a and a beer cracking break, and the other one was legitimate. <laughs> Well, I tried to answer it as best I could. I felt like that was sufficient, but that's you did. I didn't write the fucking script. I'm just trying to. All right, fucking Larry Cohen Jr. Geez. Okay. Big question. Big, big question. What is it exactly that makes Cordell supernatural? There's no transitionary moment <laughs> between when he gets the shit beat out of him and gets his brain knocked loose to when he's out on the street. So what? What happened? There's no it that that okay in that sense that I can see also being a Friday the 13th comparison. There's really no explanation whatsoever throughout the Friday the 13th franchise as to why Jason Voorhees is a supernatural being. There is no explanation whatsoever as to why Matt Cordell is a supernatural being other than through sheer will and wrath he is able to summon enough power to become this demonic entity, the supernatural entity. So, and this That's guy, great. now we're just agreeing with that LA times asshole. We were like, at, at for, off the top, we we're like, Oh, just another ill-informed opinion. And now we're like, Oh, look at these uh, <laughs> undercover Friday, the 13th references that we're but, picking up on. But, but the, that's the thing, even with Ebert, I will agree with Ebert when he, when he's right. But that doesn't mean I don't criticize. We've really come around to the LA Times guy, though. We owe him an apology. I'll, I'll no, email him, him from midnightflixpod no. at gmail.com. Absolutely not. Fuck him. He's probably a fucking <laughs> hack. He probably never watched any fucking horror movies. You know, <laughs> he can I eat. He, sure. He can, I mean, I don't know. He can eat my fuck. But that doesn't well, mean I can't disagree your, with him. To, to answer your unanswerable question, uh, it may be suppose it's like when uh, a, a mother's child gets trapped under a car and she, she summons the strength to lift the car. Right. He just has like an adrenaline boner from being out of Sing Sing now and the world is his maniac oyster. And so he's just true. Ripping, ripping people uh, with his bare arms. True, true. And I agree with you on that up to this point that I was going to make. My yes. other question is because we now... Whoever watched these movies in the 80s were not aware of this whatsoever. But since we're watching it through the lens of the past and we know that there are subsequent sequels and we see the ending of this movie, I don't care how much motherfucking adrenaline that guy's got pumping through him. He is not going to survive having, having a what is it? The the fucking the part of the, the mass, the sailing you know, mast of a Smashes ship through the wind, the, the goes through his chest. Yeah. That motherfucker is deader than dead. So again, and well, and, and, but that's the thing at the end of the movie, barring any sort of prescience or 
you know, look into potential sequels, he's gone. He's not in, he's not in the vehicle anymore. It gives you, it sets it up that there's going to be more that he's out there somewhere. So again, back to what I was saying, how the fuck does this guy have this supernatural ability? What did he do? What, and maybe, okay. Maybe that gets explained. Have you seen the sequels at all? Cause I haven't. No, I have not seen uh, okay. uh, two or three. So that's where maybe I'm fucking up with all this. Because maybe we're both assholes and, and this is an integral part of Maniac Cop 3. So that's what I want to know because, and I was actually going to, I was going to binge all three of them after watching this, but I didn't. Eventually I will. I had the intention as well and just couldn't track them down. But yeah, I, I will later down the road. So let's put a, let's put a pin in this map and we can, uh, on a later episode, retract some statements from here if we are proven incorrect because this also goes back to all right so yes la times guy we are definitely <laughs> we're, we're revealing that there are some slasher tropes here but it goes back to not only this the jason Voorhees premise excuse me but the michael myers premise where he is also a supernatural being essentially that is able to have fatal wounds inflicted upon him well, and that that is specifically medical because any 10 year old that sees their sister's tits automatically <laughs> gets superpowers so <laughs> i i don't so, know what you don't understand about that <laughs> so what we're saying is cordell saw his sister's tits or his mom's tits sally's tits his who is his mom slash girlfriend exactly maybe that's it <laughs> <laughs> maybe we're getting into maybe we're drilling into this we're just cracking the fucking omega code on this okay so anyway so there is that one other thing though i did remember and this is this is meta more or less to the movie itself but relates to one of the actors and that's the actor that plays cordell robert czar i have a question if you look at younger pictures of Robert Czar, he has what is Robert Z- Robert Zadar. Sorry, Robert Czar Zadar, whatever Z apostrophe D A R. I just he, I was like that sounds close, but I don't think it's right. Robert Zadar. Yes, yeah, go he's, ahead. he's got some crazy like Mediterranean Turkish name or whatever. Anyways, if you look at old pictures of him, young pictures of him. He has a very prominent chin, but then that's his nickname, the chin. Right. But then you notice that his chin takes on just a complete and it, it takes on a life of its own. And later on where it looks like, did he almost, it almost looks like he got his jaw enhanced because it goes from being a pretty prominent jaw to like, it's like, it looks like a deformity. So I want to know if there was some something that went on with that, where he really was like, hey, this is my trademark. This is what makes me look the way I am. I don't know. But his his jaw looks like fucking crazy from one point in time to later on. (laughs) It's disturbing. (laughs) These are the questions you had. Yes, I really did. (laughs) The jaw on the back wanna, half of the question. I want to know why the fuck his jaw look, is so huge. 
Well, I'll let you sit in your jaw shame because I'm not even going to dignify it with a response. Now we're going to move on to quotes. That's my questions. Jesus. Maniac cop? How's that for a tag? I knew I could count on you to sensationalize it the best way. Yeah, you got to do it. Make it bigger than AIDS. It's the only way to get City Hall off their ass. Quotes, quotes, quotes. <laughs> I feel like this has got some good quotes. It does. Uh, anything with Tom Adkins would. Um, security guard that sees, I believe it's uh, um, Bruce Campbell pissing in the urinal. You always take a leak with a gun in your hand. That's a good way to blow your balls That's off. That's not, no. It's not. Who's It's peeing? Tom Atkins. Oh, Atkins yeah, because it's, it's on the dock and he's got his gun and the security guard's like, what are you doing out here? But it is the security yes. guard that says it, right? That is correct. Okay. Because it sounds like an Atkins line, but Atkins is the one peeing. You're right. Um, the bar, there's in that, that scene in the bar, the bar fly says, are you sure I can't give you a lift? And, and the girl that becomes one of the victims says, I'd rather face the muggers. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> one. That, that one. <laughs> And then my favorite uh, is McRae, because um, Tom Atkins always has the best lines. Look at the size of those hematomas. That was a good one, too. Uh, for me... That's my favorite, personally. For me, I like the whole exchange that the desk sergeant and McRae have, where the desk sergeant is talking about Matt Cordell. And he says, Matt believed in the old saying, shoot first, ask questions later. They don't make cops like him. He was one of a kind. And then McCray responds, he still is. And then the death sergeant is, is like, come again. It's a good, it's a good dun dun yeah. dun. So there we go. Which would you, who, what would you give it to? Best quote. I really, I like that security guard quote. The, 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 yeah. uh, blow your really, balls off. I, I'd, I'd probably give it to him. Atkins, uh, you know, is is being Atkins, but I think that security guard quote is he he just, just that one one liner security guard. Yeah. I liked it too. We will move directly into our awards and categories, <laughs> which always starts off with um, our Dick Miller yeah. Award for. No, go, go ahead. I, I I can't wait to talk about this one. <laughs> <laughs> You're like giddy. Uh, our award for an actor in the movie who is uh, doing a lot with a little. Who do you have since your you've uh, your boner is <laughs> popping? My my bit <laughs> my bit actor boner. Your my Dick BAB, Miller, which oh, it's funny that I called it the BAB because that has to do with my selection. But before I get to there. <laughs> excuse me where is this going just remember b-a-b um Got so it. originally i was gonna say richard roundtree but he played shaft and he was in a bunch of other things and he's just like a general kind of badass dude so i was gonna say richard roundtree too because of shaft i was like oh that's the guy from shaft which is kind of what you do with this category but yeah that shaft is too big so of a instead my dick miller award goes to Cherie North, who played Sally, because I nominated her this for this because she played. Do you remember who she played? Remember no. I said B-A-B? Yeah. She plays Babs Kramer. She plays Cosmo Kramer's mom. 
What in the world? Yeah. Wow. That blew your fucking mind with that one, didn't I? That's a good one. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I didn't didn't recognize her, didn't look her up, didn't think about her. That's good. Um, yeah. Man. So there you go. Mine is just Tom Atkins. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you knew if you recognize, but Ken Lerner is in this and he plays the mayor. And he was my first Dick Miller Award from running oh, man. Because okay. he plays yes. the slimy, the slimy lawyer and he's in Buffy and um it, as the original. He's principal. the guy who gets the, the, uh, the pen stabbed in his back. Yeah. The contract stabbed yeah. to his chest. Uh, I didn't want to double dick up uh, no. Ken Lerner. So I just went with Tom Atkins because we've not given him the award yet. And this is our second Tom Atkins movie. He has more of a prominent role in Halloween 3. He's one He's mm-hmm. one of the leads. So I think this is more appropriate yeah. for him. Um, and his resume speaks for itself to where we don't even really need to <laughs> go into why we would give him the award. But I like yours yeah. a lot. That's, I was pretty that's proud excellent of that one. homework. You did that gold star um I, hey who would you gonna say yes? i have i've rechristened the, the next category oh God. geez this is Go the ahead. bill packs attack <laughs> okay <laughs> okay then let me start over our next category the bill packs attack <laughs> that's that is not you can okay. do better that does not flow right. off the tongue I'm sorry Three, two, one. <laughs> Who would you replace in this movie with Bill Paxton? Captain Ripley. Oh, yeah, yeah. I like that. Ca- Captain Ripley, because one. he's a hard ass. You know, he's he's you know he's he's a he's got he's got malice. You can tell. And no, that's a, and, that's a you good know one, yeah. that's the thing with Bill Paxton, as as we said previously he can play characters that have malice to them as well. Oh, absolutely. Even when he's playing like, even when he's playing a character that is kind of a dum-dum or, or goof, there is a certain malice present in them. Yeah. yeah so it's true. My, my only problem with that is that Ripley isn't in this very long and I would love to see more. Paxton. Sure. So therefore, what is your, selection jack forrest right. you get rid of fucking bruce campbell's His shitty attitude dick fucking and, acting yeah and you you just you just slam bill paxton in there and boom beautiful i could see him taking taking his hot partner to a seedy motel to cheat on his wife that beautiful that's beautiful bill yeah paxton that was right a consideration there. i had as well but i went with i went with ripley well, you probably didn't think about how much we would uh, shit on Bruce Campbell for this movie. Uh, off I, the top, I so. really didn't. I mean, you know, the considerations I had were present in my mind while I was watching the movie. But yeah, as I kind of did my notes and thought about it more, I was like, yeah, you know, he kind of was a he was a fucking wet blanket in this one. So <laughs> he was. <laughs> I'm going to blow through the stop sign that is this next category. Uh, it's our directorial trifecta, um, which we try to pinpoint uh, the director of the movie that we've watched his best three movies in a row. And I'm just going to hand it off to you because just like you, I've not seen Maniac Cop 2 or 3. I've seen Maniac and I've seen Maniac Cop. 
And that's it. And that is not enough information to go on for me to give you a trifecta. I will say that there are other things in William Lustig's filmography that I definitely want to see for sure. I kind of made up one without seeing uh, this movie. Yeah, go ahead. But yeah, eventually I will dig in to Lustig's skin flick career. And so my trifecta, my imaginary trifecta, once I see his pornos, is going to be Hot Honey, Maniac, and Maniac Cop. Yeah, I like that. But again, I have yeah. to watch... I'm going to, I'm going to find them. I'm sure, I'm sure they're accessible in through, through the various routes that I have access, access, accessible access to. God damn. Well, let's watch hot honey over a video chat and <laughs> rub our Dick Millers together. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm glad we found this a one, trifecta. This one. And I'm noticing a theme emerging when, when we mm-hmm. put this, up against the Ichi episode, we notice that there is becoming more and more of a pronouncement of our, uh, yeah, our, our pervert, our inner perverts. Yeah. I think it's like, um, Willem Dafoe released the, we rubbed the kink, uh, lamp and the Willem Dafoe <laughs> genie has blessed us with kinkier content ever since. Watch the watch those those streams and downloads just shoot like shoot like a hot hot jizz like a through through there through there the, it is through the urethra of of the inner Robert Ebert yes Roger Ebert which he's <laughs> stuck his thumb fully into for oh yeah for each of the killer that was the one where I set up that premise that if he did watch it, he stuck his thumb so far into his urethra because he was so disappointed. And you love shaming people for urethra kinks. So I don't know. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go down a wiki wormhole. Shall ready. we? Ready. My body is ready. Body. Speaking of your body, body count 18 dead. 19, if you include the alternate ending to this movie, which is um, the mayor sitting in his office, Cordell appearing behind him, and the screen cutting to black, and all you hearing is blood-curdling screams to credits. So, um, 18 or 19, depending on uh, the version of the film that you watched... This spawned two sequels that we've already talked about, uh, Maniac Cop 2 and 3, but that also springboarded um, two knockoff movies called Psycho Cop and Psycho Cop Returns. Mm. Not seen them, don't have well, plans. Well, no, hey, speaking of pa- possible Patreon content, maybe... That's true. Do you guys want us to watch Psycho Cop and Psycho Cop Returns back to back? I don't know. I I will do it if I'm forced to. Um, Although, and I do not mean to harsh your New York City mellow. Mm, Yeah, I know where you're going. Yeah. This is a New York, uh, New York centric movie that was only shot in New York for three days. Uh, I believe the shoot was 21 days in total, the rest being shot in L.A. 
So lies, Sorry. false advertisements. Oh, I'm. I go fake news. Fake on news, me? please. <laughs> <laughs> I am the Joe Exotic of this podcast, and I will not <laughs> have anybody coming at me without me having so them killed you, first. you will burn down this zoom conference and all the content that's in it so <laughs> <laughs> um writer producer larry cohen's idea for shooting during the saint patrick's day parade um was actually inspired by one of his other films called god told me to which has andy kaufman in the role of a killer cop who kills other cops during the parade and it is a direct predecessor to maniac Cop. yeah have you ever seen that movie i've not seen god told me yeah, to. Have you? It. it's pretty pretty nutty man that sounds awesome um the first victim in this movie is played by jill gatsby that's larry cohen's daughter uh, who coincidentally has been killed off in every movie Cohen has casted her in. <laughs> hey, I hate to do this. Yes. I'm going to pause. Yes. I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> you go. You go right ahead. Be right back. This would have turned into a much different podcast if you pissed your pants. Thing is, I've actually, I, I, I don't. I pissed your pants before on a previous episode. I've shit my pants. You uh, shit yourself I just while sat, recording. I sat in it and just. Mm. Is this real? No. Oh God! Come on, shit. really? You think I'm, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I know. I don't know. I'm not gonna. Your dedication to our craft. <laughs> I do now. You won't shit yourself for it, which is yes, that's probably the, the best. So there is, yeah, that's how much I care. Is I will sit through my own <laughs> fecal, um, sitting in my own waste. To I probably, <laughs> I probably would. I mean, once you shit in it, once you shit yourself, at you're that point, sitting you're in like, it. Well, yeah, right, it's not right, going anywhere. Okay. Yeah. I'll read the last one again, just for yes, for continuity's sake. The first victim in the movie is played by Jill Gatsby, who is Larry Cohen's real-life daughter and who is coincidentally killed off in every movie Cohen has casted her in. Can, <laughs> so can I interject? Yeah. Just to clarify for people wondering, no relation to the great Gatsby. <laughs> no, she's, she's the lesser Gatsby. <laughs> the, the lesser Jill Gatsby. <laughs> William Lustig's uncle, this is the most bizarre thing I found, is former middleweight champion Jake LaMotta, who is the subject of oh. 1980s Raging Bull. No shit. That is his uncle. That's crazy. I did not know that. And he makes a cameo in this movie as a detective at one of the early crime scenes. He's in the back. He's in the background. Jake LaMotta? Jake LaMotta himself. Fuck me. I didn't know that. That is so yeah. cool. Isn't that nuts? That is pretty nuts. 
Speaking of cameos, I'm sure you've noticed this. You did notice this, I should say. Sam Raimi makes an appearance as a reporter. Um, and William Lustig is uh, the hotel clerk. Um, I didn't know that. I did know that Sam Raimi had something to do with this movie, but I didn't know that. Yeah, he was he was a it was a brief cameo as, as just like an on-screen reporter. <laughs> For various reasons, Maniac Cop uh, was shot as a non-union film, um, mainly because they had trouble shooting at different locations in New York City, given the title of the movie. So they would give bogus titles in order to film on location at these various, uh, you know, bars and hotels and stuff. So Teamsters of the union routinely disrupted the shooting of the film. They would walk into shots. They would shine lights on the outdoor uh, sets. Um, and they, they went as far as to ride their motorcycles outside during interior shots. <laughs> wow. The, the opening credits of um, where he's putting on Cordell is putting on his uniform was done specifically because they had an alternate opening a shot that was ruined by Teamsters. So they had the, they just had him putting on the, uh, putting on his uniform set to music instead. Jeez. What a bunch of pricks. Yeah. They had it out for Larry Cohen in this one. Um, Maniac Cop was a huge hit in Japan um, for whatever reason. The but the movie's runtime is only 87 minutes, and Japanese TV requires movies to be at least 92 minutes. So, a group of Japanese producers actually paid to have five more minutes of additional footage shot and added to the film so this could air in Japan. That's amazing. That's why I love the Japanese. That's it. That, that's also one of the crazier one, crazier facts I found. Um, let's rate this bad boy unless you had any other f fun facts. I'm sorry. Oh, I, did, yeah, I yeah. didn't mean to blow right through it. No, I got a couple that you didn't mention. Uh, the coroner in the movie was Lustig's real life doctor. <laughs> I saw that too. I saw that too. Um, he's got the wildest hair in this movie, by the way, he has got some shit going on there. He did a pretty good job for being a guy that isn't a professional actor. He plays the kind of traumatized, corrupt coroner. And for having a Joe exotic haircut, it's crazy that he's a doctor. So yeah, good he, was, for him. he was very progressive. Um, <clears throat> in Turkey, this movie was called a maniac wanted uh, they didn't call it Maniac Cop because they didn't want to smear the police. They they like their cops over there in Turkey. This was the theme of the movie's distribution and, and the filming of the movie was even the title was off-putting to people to the point where they didn't want to, to assist. Right. That's all I had. Okie dokie. Um, shall we rate it? Let's rate it. I did not come up with a rating system for this one in terms of out of five blanks. What are we going to do? I thought we would have a discussion as to, you know, just spitball some ideas uh, out of five. What are we rating this out of? Uh, we could have it out of five blood smeared cop gloves, blood, blood spattered cop gloves. That five 
surly Bruce Campbells. <laughs> five surly Bruce Campbells. That's true. Um, five crutches. Uh, because Sally uses the one crutch. Five crutches. That nah, that one's not that good. Um, I. This is why I struggled to come up with. Oh, I, got, okay. I got. I got one. Five hanging cops. Because you know, there's some oh, cops. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Let's just do five dead cops. Five. There we go. Perfect. Five dead cops out of five yeah. dead cops. This was this really worked out. Well, first of all, I would say that this is a um, this is a 12 a.m. Perfect midnight movie rating in terms of is this a midnight movie? I would give it the perfect midnight score. What say you? I'm going to agree with you on that. It is it is it is a midnight movie all the way, baby. <laughs> And I will give it three dead, deservedly dead cops out of five. Really? I'll give it four. Four out of five. Wonderful. I'll give it, I'll give it four because, you know, it's, it's, it's a fun movie. And, you know, yeah, there's things to pick apart in terms of the acting and what, whatnot. And, you know, there's, it's, it, the, the script itself, the story doesn't have a whole lot of depth, but, you know, it's it's fun, and you and, and and you don't get caught up too much in it to to criticize it. You just you just sit there and just sit back and 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 ride ride it out. So I'm going to give it a four out of five. I'll tell you what: if Bill Paxton was Jack Forrest instead of Bruce Campbell, that's a four out of five minimum. There you go. But no, yeah, I gave it three out of five. Uh, Sir Bruce Campbell's surly attitude knocked it down a peg. I would say, I would say yes. If there's anything that dings it is, it is Bruce Campbell, which is that pains me to say that. But. Yeah, it's surprising. What's on the next episode? Well, Adam, it's your turn to choose. Ooh, ooh, ooh. So, as some of our listeners may know, we've had a passing of a great recently, and some uh, director that is greatly respected in the Midnight Flicks family. That would be Mr. Stuart Gordon. And we have yet to discuss any of his films. The logical thing for most people to batter up would be Reanimator, which we will get to, don't worry. But I, being the, um, what is it? The, uh, the rule breaker that I am, the type of person where I, I try to defy expectations. I try to, you know, I, I, I'll, uh, I will, um, I will zig when you zag. I guess that's best. That's, that's what I'll say about this is uh, being that, that said, I am going to pick something else. I'm going to pick what I consider his greatest sleeper hit. And that would be castle freak. We're going to talk about castle freak next time. I fucking love it. And the Stuart Gordon passing affected me more so than any uh, Hollywood passing has in a long time. Uh, a true for this podcast, uh, someone that we both have admired for a long time. And it, it was sad to see, even though he really hadn't been making films for the better part of <laughs> what seemingly a couple decades, but um it, it's going to be that that's a that's a perfect choice we tend to do movies under under the radar in terms of even uh directors that we love so 
you know, instead of Dario Argento's Suspiria, we did Phenomena. Instead of Reanimator, we're going to do Castle Freak. I think that's uh, par for the course of this podcast, and I look forward to it. Let's honor this king. We shall. (laughs) This has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for providing our intro music. Our outro music is brought to you by Seattle-based hardcore band The Convictions. If you're a band looking to submit a song or a listener looking to submit a question, feel free to shoot us an email at midnightflixpod at gmail.com, F-L-I-X, or hit us up on Instagram at Midnight Flicks Pod. Again, F-L-I-X. For Adam Walker, I'm Pat Mitchell. See you on the other side.
Goodbye.